Hey, did you just have a meeting with a donor and they told you something really, really important and you have no place to put it except for like maybe an Excel spreadsheet or I don't know, a random piece of paper in your office? Go to DonorDoc.com. Get a CRM system that works. Get a donor database system that works. Get something that gives you beautiful reports and beautiful dashboards that even your crankiest board member will love. Go to DonorDoc.com. Use the code word "Do Good Better" at checkout and get a month free. DonorDoc.com. Hey, you busy fundraiser. Yeah, you. Listen, I know you're busy planning an event and you shouldn't have to worry about what software you're using for events and online giving and peer-to-peer fundraising and auctions and mobile bidding and text-to-give. It's all at OneCause, OneCause.com. Listen, I've been using OneCause for a long time with clients all over. It's designed for busy fundraisers. It's intuitive. It's a powerful fundraising solution for your next event and you should be using it. Go to onecause.com. They're a sponsor of the show. They're amazing. They're awesome. And there's free resources galore at onecause.com. Check them out today. Choosing a partner to help you achieve success in your business or personal finances is a big decision. You need a devoted advisor who's experienced and attentive and invested in helping you accomplish your goals. Hey, you know what that sounds like? Brady Martz. Brady Martz knows that you got a lot of options to choose from, but we're confident that Brady Martz is the right accounting firm for you. they got more than a half a century of experience making everyday count through tax, accounting, audit, and business advisory services. So contact Brady Martz to learn more about their unique solutions that they can provide you and your nonprofit. Your organization is awesome, but sometimes you want to be even awesomer. It's time to get your fundraising on with your host, fundraising expert and author, Patrick Kirby. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the official Do Good Better podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Kirby. And of course, we talk with people who are going to help our small and medium-sized nonprofits do good better. I'm pumped for today's episode. I I guarantee you're going to be excited as well. Um, This is something that nonprofit leaders don't think about. We talk about it all the time. We don't think about it ourselves. You've been in a situation where you're talking with a donor, you're talking with maybe a legacy gift donor, and you're uh, talking about maybe a major gift or a large gift and saying, listen, this project is going to ramp up in three to five years or 50 years, or your benefits when you uh, pass away, you're going to leave us all your money. You won't be around to see it. Um, but you know the things you do today are going to help in the future. Like We've all said that to donors. I don't think we think about as nonprofit leaders, what that means to us as people, like what are we doing now that's going to impact the organizations for years down the line? And do we treat ourselves with the same utmost respect we treat our donors who are giving legacy gifts and understand that our work is unbelievably important for the long term? Mm, I don't think we do. So my guest is going to talk about that today. Bessie Graham is with us. Um, it's uh, it's tomorrow where she is, which is awesome because we get to be blessed with the, the future uh, from uh, the, across the globe. But I'm very excited to have her on. Bessie, welcome to the official Thank Do so Be Better podcast. Thank you. And hallelujah to what you just said. <laughs> 
I'm seriously, I don't get to talk about this uh, at all a lot. And I'm, I'm super jazzed. However, uh, if somebody's kind of like looking at iTunes or Spotify, or they find us on YouTube and they're like, this is a conversation that I need to have with myself or my leadership team, or I need to send this to a million other people, but they might not know who you are, which is a shame. So why don't you, before we kick everything off, give us a kind of a 5,000 foot view on who you are, what you do and why we're talking today. Sure. Well, the, in terms of the way that you've, framed things of us looking at ourselves as nonprofit leaders and, and what is our legacy, not just the legacy of those that are funding nonprofits and the work that we do. That really has been a big driver of my work for over 20 years now. So I'm both an impact investor and a serial entrepreneur myself, but the focus for me has always been around how do you bring back together the worlds of doing good and making money? Because I think that far too often we see those things as very separate and that we have to make a choice between those. And really that's at the heart of the challenge that you just spoke about because what we do is we think, oh, those with money or those who have gone into a corporate career or um, have been born into wealth, they've got the money piece covered and in the nonprofit sector, we're doing the good in the world. And whether we want to admit that consciously or not, it does affect power dynamics. It affects how we look at and interact with the world. And so I've kind of had a mix, if you like, both at the big end of systems. I've worked with large funding bodies, the United Nations, big foundations and governments to really create spaces where business and nonprofits can contribute to big social and environmental problems so I understand that big end of, of the, uh, the, the system, if you like, and have advisory roles with federal government here in Australia. But I also have worked for many years at that grassroots level with individual founders, whether that's of social enterprises, nonprofits, or small businesses across the world, to really figure out what is the, the business model that allows them to have that mission or purpose that they're trying to contribute to in the world but not simply rely on a funder or government and grants to make that happen. So how do they think more broadly about the different capital or assets they have that's not just about cash that says, you know, what's the social capital we have? How do we interact in the world in a way that taps into all that is available rather than simply having an approach that says, I need to go to a funder and beg them for money and say, please, sir, I want some more. Like, can you help me here? Uh, so that's sort of been the, the focus for the last 20 years, working on both ends of that spectrum of trying to create those conditions where we can more sustainably see great outcomes in the world. But the shift then for me, which I'm really looking forward to talking to you about in terms of the leaders trying to make change in the world, is that I've really seen that there is not enough focus and support and work being done with people who are actually trying to create change in the world to say, how do we get the clarity on what is your legacy? What are you trying to contribute to in the world? What are your core values and how do we actually live out and create or design for you the life that actually is fulfilling and creates outcomes? Because otherwise we just burn out and we work really hard. We don't have clarity on what we're contributing to and our part in that. And that's not sustainable for anyone. Now, if you forget why you're doing what you're doing or you're, or you're involved in um, you know, trying to figure out you know, is it, let me start with this. Cause I, I think this might be an issue is, is, is money issues at the heart of some of these 
problems with nonprofit leaders? Do we find success or like we're, we're taking paychecks that are way less than we should be pay- taking for the amount of work we do? Is that a starting point for a conversation here to say, I don't think I'm valued because I'm getting paid less, I'm working more, I must be just a cog in the machine kind of piece. But what's the, what's, I mean, what's the starting point where nonprofit leaders, and, and you see it all the time, don't think of themselves as impactful, amazing human beings. What's the, what has been the root of this? Is it just because we're serving others always and never thinking of ourselves as, you know, being like the top of our, you know, I'm the expert in my field. I understand where the impact is, whatever, but uh, don't ask me. I kind of feel a little ashamed about it because I'm just a poor little, you know, nonprofit worker. Yeah, I mean, that discomfort, again, comes back to that mindset piece because we have so strongly separated out in our in, in our societies, really, and have just taken it on board as truth that we have made that decision. So if you're running a nonprofit, there's almost this piece of, well, I made this choice. You know, I decided I wanted to be in the space. Obviously, I can't be paid properly. I won't be able to send my kids to a private school. I'm not going to earn a good income, you know. Those pieces are deeply rooted in the uh, expectations that are in this sector. And there's almost that connection of it's glorified the martyrdom of like, you know, punishing yourself that this is part of what comes with the territory. So I think those aspects are the root of the, the issue is the actual mindset and the believing whether you've taken it on board consciously or it's just been something that's absorbed over time that you don't actually have a right to ask these questions or to have a vision for your own life and your own contribution that is bigger than what the society has allowed you. Now, that is only exacerbated more by the obsession that is out there of funders and the general community critiquing, oh, what percentage is going to the actual end goal? What's the salary of this CEO? Like all of these questions put people on the back foot and the defensive to to try to prove that, no, no, we're not making any money here. No one's being paid very well. So those pieces are just everywhere. That that is a major issue for everyone in the sector. You know, it's funny. Yeah, it trickles down too, doesn't it? I mean, it trickles down like all of a sudden if the boss is saying that or the the executive director is saying that, the the new hires or the the, the really green individuals Mm -hmm. are learning that this is an acceptable way to think. Yeah. And And what we do in terms of talent with that is we then either force people to take on that martyrdom and say, well, that's just the way it is, or we lose great talent because at some point they say, well, I love this work, but I have to get a real job to actually be able to look after my own family. And that's a very um, disappointing outcome for the sector and for change, really. I know. So let's just say there's a nonprofit leader who goes, boy, I, I would love to be bigger than my, you know, the, where somebody said my role or my my title is of just like running a nonprofit. I think I do really good work. Um, where do we start? Is, is it just, yeah. is it asking the question, do you want to be or have you ever visioned out what you are bigger than this particular spot? Or where's the starting point to kind of get out of your headspace? 
Yeah. Well, I think it's really important that you start by realising this isn't just a an either-or fight of someone's got to win, someone's got to lose. So it, it's not about saying I'm going to begin arguing with funders about how much I should be paid or go to my board and fight for my rights. You know, we're not saying that. But it is about beginning to broaden how you think about and talk about the work that you do. Because if you can start to shift that and say, okay, if I can get really clear on, in, if we use your, your podcast and that focus, if I can get really clear on what does better look like? So what does that look like for the organisation in terms of the outcomes we achieve that are part of that value proposition I'm selling back to a funder or to those who engage with our organisation? But also what does better look like in terms of my own part of that and my staff and the broader organisation? So in each of the questions you ask, ask it for a broader stakeholder group. So don't just ask it related to the outcomes for a beneficiary group or for the outcomes for a funder of how you position what better is and what those outcomes are that you're achieving in the world but broaden the stakeholder group. So that's sort of the way that you start because what then happens is you need to find out how to speak appropriately to different audience groups. So in framing that bigger picture, you then design out solutions and interventions where the organisation does have the room to make sure you're not burning out your staff and expecting them to work massive hours that they're not even being paid for and inappropriately paying them. But when you're speaking to a funder, you have to be sophisticated enough to go, the piece I'm selling them on is that outcome that they are making possible or that they're catalyzing through this support. So trying to shift those conversations to the incredible outcomes being achieved, what that person's role is in it, and making it less about the conversation that becomes defensive of why you're being paid or how much you're being paid. Because the thing that I've seen over and again is when you do that and in a conversation, you really have seen and understood and communicate to that funder or, you know, whether that's government, philanthropy, whoever it is, if you can speak clearly to, I understand your strategy, I know the outcomes you're trying to achieve, here's how we will achieve them and this is what it will cost, you shift the power dynamic from someone who's, really has that desperation coming out of your pores and is asking them, you know, pick me, pick me, you know, don't pick the others that are talking to you. And you begin to be talking to them as an equal saying, you have some issues that you're trying to address. I can solve them for you. Let's work this out. And it changes that dynamic. And so I think that piece is important to always remember you're trying to create the win-win. You genuinely have to be creating better outcomes. You have to be achieving what it is that, uh, that you're saying you're doing but it's just starting to gradually shift that conversation. Sometimes you will have funders who just want to keep coming back to, well, how much is being spent here? Yeah. And you have some choices to make there. You know, Either you take a longer game and it's about gradually educating them on that, or possibly there's bigger conversations with your board or executive around who do we think are actually the aligned investors or aligned funders that we want to have in the mix what does that look like and how do we over time shift our model so that even within our nonprofit, we have multiple streams of revenue? We are not risking everything with one big funder that actually isn't aligned or is pushing us to build an organisation that is not sustainable and that is exhausting and burning out uh, our own team, which means ultimately we're not going to have that longer term impact. 
the confidence to say no, mm-hmm. that we don't need this or we're going to go in a different direction. The swagger that I think you can have with what you're talking about, right? Walk into a room and you are the expert and people should be so grateful that you're there because you're solving an issue. Yeah. There's a humility piece that I don't think a lot of nonprofit leaders can get over. And it's not, mm-hmm. it's not being cocky. It's not being arrogant. But I've often found, and this is so frustrating, brilliant, and I mean absolutely brilliant nonprofit leaders who've been doing this for a long time. They're the experts in the field. They don't act like experts. They look yeah, like, yeah. like you were saying, the hands out and the little Oliver Twist bit where they're like, yes, exactly. Hey, can I have some more? Yeah. Um, what happens when the power dynamic shifts, right? Because you're talking about like that's, that's a, and that's a major uh, yeah. mindset shift of you walking into a room full of high capacity individuals or influencers within your community. And you're sitting at the table and instead of saying, oh, I'm just a poor nonprofit. I'm a nonprofit that helps get this done, this done, this done. I'm so excited to be mm-hmm. here and meet you. The added, yeah. like, holy crap, that's a real it twist. Completely shifts. What happens? What, yeah. what, what can they, what can a nonprofit leader who's like, like getting really excited about turning on this, uh, this mm-hmm. thing that they've probably always wanted to do, by the way, yeah. but they've never been either given permission to or thought or give, given themselves permission to because yeah, yeah. of this humble leadership piece that they've always been, uh, you know, uh, required to because that's what everybody does, right? What happens? What's what? What have you seen when you yourself either put on this thing that that your the seat at the table becomes, you know, uh, the knights of the round table bit, right? Where everybody's mm-hmm. sitting equal. What happens? So, firstly, don't wait for someone to give you permission. Because that's never going to happen. Yes. <laughs> yes. So give yourself permission for that one. Yes. But also you made an interesting comment because you said, because that's what everyone else is doing. Okay. There's a reason why you therefore can't stand out. There's a reason why you are competing with every other nonprofit and feeling that sense of scarcity, desperation, that there's not enough to go around. It's because we all keep engaging mm-hmm. as if this is a desperate bloodbath of fighting for limited funds that has to change and it changes by us as individual leaders in the sector saying I'm not going to interact like that so the the, it's about you making those decisions and having the confidence to sit in that the second thing is that if you look at the research you if you just start with that um, humility and saying what doesn't work and what you struggle with If you start with that, you won't be respected. But if you prove initially why you are capable, why you have track record, if it's already an established fact that you are an authority or an expert in your field, you can then go into more of the humility aspects of what you struggle with, what's difficult, where you have had failures and learnt from them. But we have to be very careful to not lead with the humility, failure, struggle piece because that doesn't instill confidence. And so you can keep that part. It is important. And as you said, we do not want to shift into just being these arrogant, cocky people that come in, you know, thinking that the world revolves around them. By no means are we suggesting that. 
but it is sequence is important and you must establish yourself as worthy of being in that room and someone who actually has something worth listening to. So establish yourself first and then those other pieces can follow. And I think one of the pieces that it definitely happens um, when this shift occurs is that you're also being more respectful to the people you're talking to because they feel seen that you have taken the time to understand what they are trying to achieve in the world. And if you frame things in that sense that says, you guys have set this incredibly ambitious strategy around what you're going to contribute to as a foundation over the next 20 or 30 years, I want to help you get there. If you make the conversation about creating that win for them and how you can do that, and point to your track record in terms of here's what we've achieved before, this is why we are the people to partner with on this, then you're not just setting yourself up as the answer, but you are respecting them and trying to create a win for them that just happens to be in partnership with you. And that approach will make you stand out compared to everybody else who comes in and is justifying and and trying to prove why they should get the money and that you will just blend in with everyone else. A conversation where you are respectful and understand their strategy and the outcomes they want and where you present yourself as the person who can achieve that for them and give that credibility and confidence completely shifts the conversation. Does this make donor decisions easier by taking out the demand almost that they do the research on your personality and your humility and trying to figure out what on earth do you do rather than walking in the door saying, this is our impact. This is the thing. This is why we make a perfect match together. Let's go and make this happen. You streamline the donor's decision or the partner, Mm -hmm. the business's decision because you've done the research and you're confident enough to kind of walk up and go, this is kind of the bit. Yeah, absolutely. It completely does. And and that, again, who doesn't want that when they're being overwhelmed with a hundred different options? Right. If you can just lay it out for them very clearly, that's a much more straightforward uh, interaction that anyone would prefer. I love the way that you've done this because it's such a busy space. My goodness, mm-hmm. everybody's vying for the attention. Yeah, they're vying for dollars, but if you've got this abundance mindset and there's yeah. more, there's money to go around, I we get it. It's it's overcoming the noise. And if you're just part of the white noise in the background, you don't stand out. You're like, why don't people pay attention to me? Because you're doing everything else everybody else is doing. What would you say to a nonprofit leader who says, I like what I like this. I feel like this could be me. I want to be empowered to do it, but it might turn some people off because they're used to this. Oh, please. I just need you to uh, help us. And they feel like this, you know, uh, this Christ-like savior that comes to come into the organization and do this. And and a nonprofit leader might go, what if this is a turnoff to those that I have traditionally been doing this? What? How do you discuss or how do you walk through building enough confidence that that's not going to be an issue? Or what, what if it is an issue? Do we care? Look, it could be an issue. And again, one of the things as a leader that you have to be able to do is run scenarios. So strategy and thinking through what you're going to do. You do need to think through what could happen here. Am I okay with that? So thinking through, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen in this this conversation? If in fact you 
taking a risk and you currently only have one large funder who's incredibly, um, you know, in terms of the power dynamic, in terms of how conservative they are, if this as just a out of the blue shift in strategy would be incredibly risky and could potentially mean, in fact, you lost all your funding and had to let your entire team go, that scenario may not be very wise, right? So we do need to, as the leader, take responsibility for thinking these things through. And it may be that if your organisation is in that situation, you have a staged approach and you go, okay, what's the pragmatic approach where we chip away at this? What do we need to have in place before we have that type of conversation with our sole funder? So if that's your model, you do need to think through what that looks like and possibly you'll have kind of some steps or horizons that you'll build to over time. For others, and I would venture to say that it's most organisations, that level of risk is not actually going to be present. And one of the ways that I think you could take away both the chance of that happening and your own your own sort of discomfort of suddenly being the person who's coming in and saying, I'm the answer to all your problems, <laughs> is that I have personally and then coached other people had interactions with philanthropists where they ask for a certain piece of work to be done or to fund you to do a, a piece of work. And I've been very honest and said, I don't actually think we're the best group to do that. I think you should talk to these other people. Here's the part of it that we would be the right match for. But, you know, organisation B would be the best match for you to get that outcome. When you start to have conversations like that with funders, and again, you suddenly are not desperately grabbing at everything. The level of honesty that you have, they're going to say, oh, no one's ever not taken my funding before. This is interesting. So I've had philanthropists say, I can't believe you're not actually taking that funding. And I'm like, well, we're here to get the outcome. We are not the solution for what you're looking for. So you can, in the conversations, you should always be putting yourself in a position where you're thinking through, okay, this is what they need to achieve. What is the best way to get that outcome? Who is best positioned to support them in that? So that shift, we only have control over ourselves. There is a whole bunch of things in the philanthropic space and the government funding space that needs to change. But unless you have the levers to pull there, if that's not the world you operate in, you can't directly change that, but you can change how you interact with it. So if we're having conversations with a funder, where ultimately we feel like they're putting us in a position where we have to be dishonest and we have to pretend we're good at things we're not good at to get their funding, then you have the choice to shift how you interact and to actually present more clearly what it is you are great at, where your brilliance lies as an organisation, where your track record is, and then relax into the fact that you don't have to be the answer to every problem. If the outcome is what we're after, changing the world, addressing that big social or environmental issue, then focus on that and demonstrate again and again that you have the integrity and credibility in the way you interact and funders will seek you out. Mm -hmm. I, I love the Jedi mind trick you just played on everybody too, which is uh, we're not the organization that you're looking for. What? No. And, and a lot of yeah. times they're going to come back and go, but I want to be a part of this one they, they, because exactly. like you just said, nobody says no to money. That doesn't yeah. make any sense. And to have the audacity, mm -hmm. and the confidence to say that I think you as a donor are better suited elsewhere. 
because it's going to make you feel great. You don't think that's going to get around. You don't think that that, you don't think that that is a thing that they will talk about in front of other donors. Mm -hmm. Oh, they will. Oh my God, they will. And I, what I love about this, uh, this mindset shift you're talking about is even if it's not a good fit for you, you are purposefully developing an action plan, which is way more in depth than you probably have in this sort of like humble, please, sir, can I have some, some donor things? You're walking through scenarios, you're planning, you're uh, thoughtfully uh, positioning your organization or yourself in front of people who are going to be best fit for this. So you're actually doing more good work and saving yourself time and energy and effort trying to figure out if somebody, you know, I'm going to tell this to everybody and just hope somebody falls in my lap. No, no, no. You're being strategic about this whole thing. You're becoming a better fundraiser by positioning yourself exactly like this. Absolutely. And you, so your point around they will speak to other funders about that interaction. Uh-huh. Your clarity on what you do yeah. means that then they are out pitching you to other people because they'll say, oh, my goodness, I had this conversation with this incredible organisation. They didn't fit with what we were doing, but you guys are in the education space and you should see their outcomes. Look them up. This is who they are. Suddenly you've got that chorus of approval. You have other funders who already have trust and rapport and respect from this other funder saying you're amazing, you then go into that conversation not from a place of having to prove yourself but with them going, oh, if this person I trust and respect says you're you're worth funding, I already think you are. We've talked about this on the podcast, I don't know how many times in the last couple hundred episodes, is third-party endorsement exponentially more important than first-party solicitation. And if you are running in the circles of major donors who talk nice about you, you are in such a better position than you were prior to that, that I can't even explain to that. Here's the other thing too. I think deep down inside these major funders and businesses, it doesn't matter what that is, businesses, Mm -hmm. governments, grants or whatever, all they want to do is make an impact. And, And I think they are so used to people sort of bending over, like fawning over them and saying like, oh, please give us all these things. And I think it frustrates them to a point because they haven't gotten to the thing where they can just go, I know what I'm doing. And you're helping them feel confident where their money goes, which they probably haven't felt in a long time. They're, yeah. they're testing gifts in order to figure out if this is the right organization for them. They're, they're trying to figure out their own way as well. You're, you're giving donors a hell of a lot more credit than they probably deserve. They don't know what they're doing the same way that you might not think that you're doing as well. You're learning together at this point. And so if you can cut out this like uh, dance that you're doing, this dance of uh, dance of the pauper, or like, Hey, let's get us that. Like if you can get rid of that and just go right to where like everybody feels great. I mean, you're saving them time. You're saving yourself some headaches. You're, you're growing as a nonprofit leader. You're growing as a thing. And then it gets down to you're now establishing for your organization, a type of way that you're interacting with donors that will then get passed on from generation to generation. Exactly. I, I don't think we think about that a lot. 
I said, it's on top of the show. I know we don't. So can you walk us through the importance of being the leader that understands that you're not going to be there forever? And what are you doing today? And what conversations are you having today as a donor or as a, as a nonprofit leader that's going to set a precedence and an example for how the next generation of those who are taking over your spot when you're, you know, uh, decide to move on to something bigger and better, you decide that you've done enough. You want to retire someday, uh, whatever that, what does that look like? And, and how important is that for you, the nonprofit leader to understand and recognize and think about? The, it's such a critical piece because again, it's the aspect of starting to not just put all the power in what others are doing or that those people have decision-making rights. Sorry, you're the leader of an organization. You have either a team or um, other partners that you're working with who are all interacting with you and, and for them, you are in a position of power. So you have to actually sit with and own that. There are aspects where you have decision-making rights. There are aspects where you are, as you said, setting the tone, creating a culture. People are watching you and they will model your behaviour. And so those aspects are really important to actually take on board and then be more conscious of and intentional in how you behave, how you make decisions, what that all looks like. I found it really helpful. So I think I said at the beginning, I'm in that category of serial entrepreneur. I've built multiple organisations. And when I begin something, whether it's a setting up of an actual organisation or it's a big project with a government or some type of intervention, I always frame in my own mind that my core job is to make myself redundant. I shouldn't be needed at some point and hopefully soon. Because when I see founders or leaders of organisations who don't have that approach from the beginning, we often talk about them, they become feral founders. It becomes this awkward piece of it's very clear to everyone else that they are no longer the person that should be running this organisation and yet they won't get out of the way. If you frame your job as that piece of this should work without me at some point. This is not about me. Don't call it your baby. Don't put it in any of those um, kind of categories that make it then very difficult to step away or to remove your ego from the mix. So thinking about it in that way, I have personally found very helpful and it's meant I've been able to walk away from something that I've built and run for eight years, hand it to a deputy CEO to become the CEO, stepped off the board and, and had multiple people come up and say, I couldn't do that. How did you do that? Well, that's how I did it. You frame in your own mind from the beginning that this is not about you. Mm. But while it's not about you, in that, the time that you are there, it is about you and you do have to take responsibility for that. So what does that look like? Well, it does mean you have to be really clear on those aspects of the strategy, of that vision of what is the organisation actually trying to be part of in the world? Where are you currently? So I often talk about, you know, you've got context and you've got vision. So what is the context that you're operating in? Where are you at the moment? But where do you want to go? And for any of us in this sector, we have to acknowledge that when we're talking about impact, no one person or one organisation can claim attribution for impact. There will be multiple factors that contribute to that. So you're not trying to say, what is the piece that we as an organisation can solely take credit for? 
But what do you want to contribute towards? So big picture impact level, what do you want to be part of creating change? And then a whole bunch of beautiful opportunities emerge between that context and vision of what that could look like. So your job is then to start to drill into and come up with the strategies, the programs, the interventions. What could you do as an organisation to be part of that change? And as you become clear on that of what what are the skill sets you have, where are you best positioned to contribute, that's where you can really rest into these things and not feel this urgency or desperation to chase or be reactive to whatever funding comes your way and trying to then, oh, let's design a program that does that because there's funding for it. This clarity is incredibly appealing to funders. It's incredibly appealing to your staff because the team knows what they're actually trying to achieve and it doesn't top and change every, you know, every quarter based on funding. And that piece for you as a leader then, drilling into these components, being clear on what you're trying to be part of, who you are as an organisation, just establishes a rhythm and those cultural behaviours that are far more appealing for everybody and that, you know, you will be creating a legacy. I absolutely guarantee it in that process. Is is there something that has to, I'm like, it makes me like a weird question, but you almost get to be your own celebrity within the nonprofit realm, you know, in a weird way, right? You're this like, you can be, it's okay to be. And I, this goes back to that permission thing. It's okay mm-hmm. to be like a nonprofit little like local like a local celebrity. It's okay. It's okay to have a personal brand that's associated yes. with your leadership style or your legacy like uh, planning mm-hmm. sort of piece. Not necessarily like the face of, you're the face of the organization. Why don't you just like live up to it? It's be fine. It's okay. No one's gonna no one's gonna be mad at you for being that. But but how much does it have to be like where it's okay to walk into a room and they go, "There's Bessie." I know exactly what she does. I know exactly where she's going. I want to be associated with that individual in person. And that comes back to that sort of, do you, is it okay to allow yourself that little moment, you know, where you don't, it's okay. I just always want to give everybody permission to do this. Like this is, we constantly just want to give people like the, like here, here's your celebrity card. Here's your, uh, I know better than everybody else's. Yeah. Just go, go and do that thing. There's always a hesitation about that because I know because it's big. Your organization is bigger than you. Okay, it might be, but you're the head of the organization. It's okay. It's okay to do some of that kind of stuff, and and that changes the perspective. People want the the influencers want to hang out with you. The donors understand um, that they get to like be a part of something bigger because you've created it that way. Um, and I just don't know. I've always I've always felt gross about not always felt gross not giving permission to do that. So it's not only, okay, it should be more than for just a minute. So like, don't just try to have this short moment in time, your entire career and the, the way in which you operate should be on an elevated plane. You should be operating. You can definitely step up in where you're currently operating and where you should be operating. And the reason why that is more than okay, there's two two things that come to mind for me. One is when you do that, the level of clarity and impact that you have is so much higher. So, yes, it's okay. You will be more impactful in a positive way in the world. We're not talking about encouraging you 
to create a personal brand simply for your own wealth and promotion. We're talking about creating a personal brand to have more impact in the world. So firstly, that's why it's okay, because you will be doing more good than you were previously doing. The second reason it's okay is because you will inspire others to become more clear in what they're doing and to lift their game because they'll say, oh, they were unknown before or just like the rest of us, look at the shift and I want to talk to them and understand what did they do to actually begin to operate the way they are now operating. So whether it is other nonprofit leaders, whether it is the general community who starts to have a respect for the work you do in a different way and talks differently about the nonprofit sector and how the outcomes they achieve, how they're compensated, whether you're shifting that conversation or whether it's with big philanthropists, small funders, whatever that aspect of funding is, you will be shifting their perception and their interaction and then their own expectations of what relationships look like with people they fund. So that second piece is incredibly important because as leaders, not only do we want our organisation or the work we directly do, to have impact in the world, the ripple effect and that flow on impact, that's where we create a massive legacy. So why would you not step up and own that space? Again, I'm not suggesting you pretend you have expertise where you don't. In fact, you should do the opposite. You should find other people who are brilliant at that and point at them. But where you do have brilliance, there is no downside to you owning that. Is there an... When did this come up? Because again, serial entrepreneur, I'm doing this, I'm doing a fine, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're all over the place and it's great. This turn to understanding the importance of having somebody own this, be this leader, and you know, sort of embrace um, this, uh, this sort of mindset shift. When did that happen? Or did it happen over a course of a number of years? But was there a moment where you're like, oh, crap, this is... This is the key to getting nonprofit leaders to figure out their own stuff and like and like move on. Was there like a light bulb issue or a lightning strike that you go, this, this is it. I'm making the turn right now. It was actually a, a bit of a full circle moment. So originally, back when I did my undergraduate and my postgraduate studies, what I was obsessed with and studying was leadership. So mm. politics, my master's was actually in counterterrorism. So I was looking at aspects of leadership and, and how people influence and what change looks like. And so my master's thesis, I actually compared the leadership style of three different leaders in um, Timor-Leste or East Timor, depending on how you frame that, that country. And so I had always been looking at this role of the leader. How do we influence and create change in the world? How, what does it look like to do that well? Because my focus has always been on bringing those worlds together. I think there's a role for government, there's a role for philanthropy and nonprofits, there's a role for business to create change in the world. But my focus originally was on leadership and on that role. As I went into the work of trying to actually create the organisations that were delivering change, to work with governments and funders around the ecosystems that supported those organisations. I did that for years and it was actually during COVID. So in the last two years of not suddenly not being able to get on a plane and go and do the work I used to do, as I reflected on what had worked, what felt frustrating and that didn't live up to the outcomes and impact that I had hoped it would, the pattern I saw again and again was this aspect of 
it was when the leaders, the founders, the people running these organisations had not actually done their own work as a leader, did not first work on themselves before they tried to lead others, create impact out there in the world. That's when things could not actually be sustained and were not being as impactful as they could be. And so for me, it was in that full circle moment back to, I think actually for the next 20 years, where I should focus is finding those incredibly passionate leaders who want to contribute in the world, whether they are funders or those running the organisations, and help them get the clarity on their own values, on what they want their legacy to be, and support them in that process. Because as leaders, we underestimate how much we influence whether or not outcomes are achieved. So that's sort of been the journey for me to get to this point. I, I love the fact that that not, not only you're giving permission for this, but you're giving permission for people to explore and how to work on themselves. And in the nonprofit world, we are not taught that. We are we're gifted this conference we get to go to. We're gifted this hour-long seminar that the board has graciously uh, brought up. Yeah. It's never yeah. personal stuff, is it? That's It's fascinating to me. In business, it's the first thing you're doing. Hey, get right with yourself. Get right in the head. Get whatever. Yeah. But in get the a coach. World, get something. Yeah, get exactly. Some, get a coach. Get something else. In the nonprofit world, it is, it is well, why don't you need to do that? That sounds way aggressive. You don't need to do that. Yeah, you do. <laughs> right? Um, that's the interesting part about this. And I think this is the fascinating switch where I think nonprofit leaders are going to have to do this in order to keep up with the ever-changing sort of world and landscape you're in. Because if you're not if you're not in the right the headspace, if you're not in the right leadership uh, position, if you don't have a coach, if you don't have somebody who can tell you that you need to get into this, uh, this, this the mind space or this, this mindset shift, you're going to be behind the times and now you're going to be burnt out because you're not in a, a place that's going to be competitive with other people. And you're going to see others get ahead. You're going to get depressed about yeah. the fact like they're going to be there. I, I love that you're getting uh, into the permission giving to be coached, to be, to have a leadership uh, piece to that. Cause that's unbelievably important and not done enough cross board. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. I'm guessing that there are people listening to this podcast that wonder if they can call you for set opportunities for this kind of thing as well. That wouldn't be happening to something that you would be uh, offering. I, I, that clearly isn't the case, right? Goodness, no. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Of course it is. This is this is what this is the best because I think I think people want to be where you are headspace wise. And I would love it if you would uh, lead us down the path of where on yeah. earth we could find you so that we can get other people involved in getting your, your perspective in the nonprofit world needs to be exponentially done. How on earth do we do this? So the first piece, because again, as I said, this is a journey, right? So it is about you personally getting to understand yourself better and, and start to explore what is the best way for you to to actually then have impact in the world so people can i have a podcast called both and with bessie graham so again trying to get you to not think you have to choose either or which one you can have both so that's the podcast so people can obviously listen to that and and start to go through some of those exercises of how they're thinking about and getting clarity on things like their core values what they want to contribute to in the world and then also jump over to, I have a website, bessiegraham.com. So Bessie, B-E-S-S-I. -S -S and 
there you'll find some videos and different resources and bits and pieces which will just help you to to dig in a little deeper to this because again a little bit like your nonprofit is not the answer for every funder i won't be the answer for each of you but my hope is that some of those free resources will help you get clarity on what support do you need who is best to do that i'm certainly happy for people to then directly reach out to me and to have a zoom or have a conversation to explore that my approach will always be to understand what someone needs and then figure out the best way for them to get that. So podcast and the website would be the best places for you to start to explore that some more. At the end of this uh, show, everybody better get to the show notes because we're going to put all those links in there and you go click on that and you go reach out to Bessie because she's going to get you in the right headspace. And by the way, if you're clicking around on things and you haven't subscribed to this show yet, well, you should. This seems like Shame a logical uh, place to start uh, your journey with the official Do Good Better podcast and then immediately go back and follow Bessie's podcast or Bessie's podcast and go get on there and get on her website and sign up for everything that she's got because this is absolute goal. Uh, you will have to go listen to this, uh, this podcast again because there's so many nuggets of good and amazing information that is going to snap you out of this whole like beggar mentality, this whole like I don't deserve you know, to be this leader. I don't, I don't have the expertise. Yes, you do. It should be great. Um, I have enjoyed every bit of this conversation. I, this has been enlightening. I'm so glad that you're another voice in the, in the, in the world, trying to give clarity to nonprofit leaders and encourage them to just rock out at their job. And it's okay to be awesome. I love that. I'm, I'm very excited to kind of even explore all the stuff that you got on your website. I'm really excited. I'm excited to have you in my little do-good circle now. This is even better. Uh, but I'm mostly excited and mostly grateful uh, that you spent uh, time in perspective here on the official Do Good Better podcast. Thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. Look, as someone who listens to the show, you know that I love helping small and medium-sized nonprofits. That's why we bring on the awesome experts and guests that get to talk to you about how to make your organization more awesome. So I've got a deal for you. I would like to help you. I would like to work with you. So if you go to dogooduniversity.com, that's dogooduniversity.com, and you register for one of the courses, I'm going to send you my best-selling book, Fundraise Awesomer, a practical guide to staying sane while doing good for free because I really want you to do amazing work. Listen, dogooduniversity.com. Go pick out something, whether it's a board training or a gratitude training or whatever webinar you want to choose. Um, use the promo code podcast. Take 25% off of anything that you purchase. And I'm going to throw in a book as well because I want you to do awesome. I want you to do awesomer. And I want you to do good better. Go to dogooduniversity.com today. Hey, did you just have a meeting with a donor and they told you something really, really important and you have no place to put it except for like maybe an Excel spreadsheet or a, I don't know, a random piece of paper in your office? Go to donordoc.com. Get a CRM system that works. Get a donor database system that works. Get something that gives you beautiful reports and beautiful dashboards that even your crankiest board member will love. Go to DonorDoc.com, use the code word, do good better at checkout, and get a month free. DonorDoc.com.
Hey, you busy fundraiser. Yeah, you. Listen, I know you're busy planning an event and you shouldn't have to worry about what software you're using for events and online giving and peer-to-peer fundraising and auctions and mobile bidding and text to give. It's all at OneCause, OneCause.com. Listen, I've been using OneCause for a long time with clients all over. It's designed for busy fundraisers. It's intuitive. It's a powerful fundraising solution for your next event and you should be using it. Go to onecause.com. They're a sponsor of the show. They're amazing. They're awesome. And there's free resources galore at onecause.com. Check them out today. Choosing a partner to help you achieve success in your business or personal finances is a big decision. You need a devoted advisor who's experienced and attentive and invested in helping you accomplish your goals. Hey, you know what that sounds like? Brady Martz. Brady Martz knows that you've got a lot of options to choose from, but we're confident that Brady Martz is the right accounting firm for you. they got more than a half a century of experience making everyday count through tax, accounting, audit, and business advisory services. So contact Brady Martz to learn more about their unique solutions that they can provide you and your nonprofit.